2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My
0: name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you some listener mail. It's been a little bit since we did that, so we're broadcasting from our respective laundry rooms and closets here. But uh, we're getting back in touch with you now that you've gotten in touch with us. And to help us out here today, our mailbot, Carney... Ooh, he's gotten into a mess of trouble. It seems that Carney has gotten into his mind that he should create AI-generated fireworks displays, and boy, he can really Markov chain up a mess here, can't
1: he? He sure can. I mean, he was always a little bit explosive in the best of times, but now he has actual explosives. Uh, just his, his entire um, uh, fuselage is just stuffed with Roman candles.
0: Yeah, so it is with great delicacy that we must remove your messages from uh, from. Carney's bowels today,
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is all. I want to do want to reiterate just at the top of this episode that uh, it is always great to hear from everyone out there, to hear from listeners. Uh, we we don't ha- certainly don't have time to respond to everything, and we don't have time on the show to feature everything. But we do read everything that comes in. Uh, we, we love it when you provide additional insight or experience uh, related to different topics that we've covered, and, and we do cover quite a few topics that I think touch on on the universal human experience as well. Exactly right. But also we we cover things that get into the very specific human
0: experience. For example, the number of people who have uh, jumped out of an airplane and gotten in touch with us to tell us what that's like. So should we start with this uh, email from Kelly here? Let's do it.
1: Kelly writes, hey, guys, I just started listening to your podcast recently, and I've been shuffling around different episode topics that looked interesting. I had to listen to one about surviving a 10,000 foot fall as I'm a professional skydiver, and I knew you would definitely bring up a lot of skydiving in it. I know it's almost a year old, but oh well. You ask what terminal velocity feels like. My best description that I tell tandem students who are worried about that belly-in-the-throat feeling is that it is more accurately comparable to the feeling of sticking your hand out the window on the freeway. You feel supported resistance. And when you exit a plane, you are going the same speed as the plane, so you don't get that free-fall feeling you would when jumping off a static object. Also, the way you orient your body is like when you're surfing your hand uh, like a wave out the window. When you point your finger down, you feel you're slicing the air and up gives you lift. Uh, Fun fact, wingsuits can slow down to about 30 miles per hour and actually go up when doing the maneuver called a flare, which is what we do to slow down in a wingsuit before deploying our parachutes Uh, and uh, would be my go-to move right before impact if I had no parachute out. My friend survived a wingsuit base-jumping accident with no parachute out when he went into the trees and took out a 30-meter line of dense forest. Whoa. And another survived with nothing out while jumping off a 350-foot bridge. He landed in the river below and swam himself to the beach with a ton of broken bones. But this kind of luck is almost entirely unheard of. Love your show, I'm so happy to have discovered it. If you ever have any skydiving questions, feel free to shoot me a message. Thanks, Kelly.
0: Wow, swam to shore with broken bones. Ugh, that, that gives me the
1: willies. Yeah, uh, no, I I found that interesting. The the mention of wingsuits, and I don't remember if we got into wingsuits much on that episode at all. I don't think so. But it's it's a topic that I, I wrote an article for How Stuff Works about wingsuits ages ago, and then the I want to say the most recent World Science Festival in New York, which would have been the uh, the 2019 one. There was a there was a talk about About the human brain and extreme sports and like people who do extreme things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, free climbing and Mm -hmm. wingsuit uh, uh, flying, uh, like what's going on in their mind. And uh, there was at one point one of the experts was just getting into the – just the statistics of wingsuits and wingsuit technology and sort of you know, the different, uh, you know, ups and downs of how dangerous it is. It was mm-hmm. really quite, quite fascinating. If anyone out there is interested in checking out a video of that presentation, it was titled The Science of Extreme Behavior, The Line Between Courageous and Crazy. Uh, you can find it on, on uh, the YouTube channel for the, uh, the World Science Festival. It's, it's really fascinating.
0: All right. Do you want to take a look at this next email about my interview with Bart Ehrman on his book, Heaven and Hell? Yes. This one comes from our listener, Ben. Ben says, Hello from London, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to the Heaven and Hell episode and wanted to share a few cool tidbits in the same vein. I studied classics at university and as a result got to read some very cool texts in the original Latin and ancient Greek. While I only read a bit of the Bible, I thought it was interesting how the first sentence, and I think this is the first sentence of the Gospel of John, was, In the beginning was the word in English. Uh, but Ben says that uh, in Greek it is, In the beginning was reason. And mm. I'm going to try to pronounce this. In arche in ho logos. Mm. I could theoretically get behind that statement a lot more. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've actually looked into this before. There There is this question about how exactly to translate that statement at the beginning of the Gospel of John. But yeah, reason and the word, uh, th- these concepts are are sort of synonymous and linked in ancient Greek.
1: Oh, that's that's good. Yeah, because in the beginning there was the word. I remember being confused by that as a as a child. I'm like, what are you saying? You saying the Bible came first? Like, what what do you mean? There was there were words first? Like, this doesn't make any sense. But logos, uh, reason being first, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, and Ben goes on. Another possibly
0: apocryphal story I heard, which the Bart Ehrman episode reminded me of, is the origin of the saying, It doesn't matter an iota. As I heard it, at the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE, the early church fathers were debating the nature of Jesus, whether he was like the substance of God or of the same substance as God, which in Greek the difference would be homoros or homoios. Clearly, this decision had massive ramifications for the future development of and schisms within Christianity. And as you can see, one iota mattered an awful lot. So, the difference there is uh, the difference between an R and an I in that word. Um, uh. But this was like a hugely significant uh, theological dispute. And uh, so, I don't know if this is the origin of that phrase. It doesn't matter one iota. I know the idea of an iota of difference also has roots in the Bible itself, in the Gospel of Matthew, where, uh, where in, the, in the telling of Matthew, Jesus says that, you know, not one iota of the law will pass away, often translated as not one jot or tittle. I think it just means like one of the smallest possible markings in writing. And this is making the point that the author of the Gospel of Matthew particularly wants to make, which is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish law. Uh, But this ties into my conversation with Bart Ehrman, because one of the things that Bart and I talked about was how, especially in later development in the church, like in in later Christian centuries, uh, there was much more fierce debate over differences in theology that seem very small to us, but mattered a lot to them, like debates over exactly what type of substance the incarnation of Christ was. Did Jesus have a belly button? That sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So Ben goes on. The last thing I wanted to share was how great the Greek Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus was and how important his thoughts were to the development of Christian concepts. His main work was the Aeneids, elements of which shaped the Christian idea of the Trinity and the thorny issue of how Jesus could be both man and God at the same time. Well worth a read if you can find a good translation. That's it great episode. I love all that stuff, even though I'm a pragmatic secular atheist in the Judeo-Christian monotheistic sense. <laughs> Thanks. Stay safe. Keep making great episodes, Ben. Well, thank you, Ben.
1: Yes, indeed. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping we'll hear from some more listeners on this topic, because I know we have a lot of listeners out there who are either, you know, to varying degrees an, an active member of, uh, of of one of the, the faiths affected by the, the ideas that uh, were discussed in that episode, or you have, um, you know, a past with those uh, with, with the cultures that are at- attached to those uh, traditions. Um, I, I feel like, you know, a lot, a lot of us have some insight to share on just sort of the general ideas regarding it hell and heaven that are wrapped up in our cultures.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think one point that Bart made that I think is absolutely true is even if you are not personally Christian or Jewish, the ideas of the Bible still have been massively influ- influential in shaping the culture that we live in here in, you know, in the United States and in Europe especially.
1: Yeah. um, You know, in our our recent episode that we recorded, I don't know if it's out yet uh, as of this uh, publication, but we were talking about helmets and the idea of Viking helmets uh, with horns showing up in in cartoons when we are a child. And that just kind of gets burnt into your brain. And then when you you later learn that Vikings did not have horned helmets, it doesn't matter because you still have that, that idea knocking around your head. With Heaven and Hell, it's the same thing. Like how many different cartoons, how many different, you know, Films that young uh, viewers would have seen ended up utilizing, uh, you know, angel and devil, heaven and hell uh, 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 motifs and symbolism. Isn't it strange how many cartoons
0: show characters going to hell? Yeah. <laughs> I remember that happening all the time in Looney Tunes and stuff. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, and in Disney cartoons. Like, I think uh-huh. Pluto the dog went to hell a hell run by cats for messing with cats or something. I I strongly remember images from that one because it had some really diabolical content. Um, but, uh, yeah, I digress.
0: Uh, Well, should we go on to this next email we got about fireworks from Kelsey?
1: Yes. Oh, and I can tell that Carney's particularly excited about this one. All right. Um, Kelsey writes Hello. I was delighted to see the topic uh, of your show today, as my father has worked in the fireworks industry for about 20 years now. So it's a place near and dear to my heart. In fact, when I was in elementary school, my first science fair project was a detailed breakdown of how display fireworks, the mortar kind you described near the end of the show, are made, complete with models that I made from actual shell casings, with considerable help from my dad, who was um, managing one of the last remaining fireworks manufacturing plants in the U.S. at the time. I don't think the judges quite knew what to do with an earnest third grader explaining how to make a bomb. But needless to say, (laughs) my physics-based project uh, about uh, leverage the next year won me more accolades. (laughs) At any rate, I wanted to write in because there are actually people out there who make fireworks in their backyards, as it were. You do need to have a fair amount of space to legally slash safely store large amounts of black powder, but otherwise the process of making fireworks isn't terribly difficult or even that unsafe so long as you follow some basic rules for handling, disposal, etc., I'm not actually sure what the exact laws are surrounding this sort of thing, but I know my dad has plenty of industry friends who have small workshops where they can play around and develop new formulas. When I was younger, the pyro club my dad belonged to would rent out a field occasionally so that people could bring their stuff and show it off. Some cool, less well-known firework things. In Toltepec, a city north of Mexico City, they have an annual fireworks festival that involves two incredibly harrowing events. Number one, they construct paper mache bowls, which are worn sort of over the head and shoulders um, or places on some kind or placed on some kind of a wheeled cart. And then they strap a bunch of fireworks to those and essentially do a sort of running of the bulls in the town square. But, you know, on fire.
0: Whoa, that's, this, this reminds me of the uh, story by
1: the pyromancers of England about creating yeah. St. George and the Dragon, but they're full of fireworks. Exactly. Uh, so th- that's interesting. We didn't get into that that as much, but I, I wonder, like, to what it, I mean, when you're dealing with uh, the burning of things in effigy um, and, and creating works of sculpture that incorporate fire, like that, that seems to play a, a role in the, the history of pyrotechnics as well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, she goes on to share a second example. Two. They create these beautiful fireworks-driven fireworks automatons, which they then rig up on these huge towers. I believe each crew gets their own tower, and it's a competition to see which is the best. My dad has attended this event several times, though some years ago now. And apparently, if one of the automatons gets stuck, guys will just scale the burning tower to give the recalcitrant part a little nudge and get things going again. (laughs) And with all that knowledge in mind, I was unsurprised to find upon Googling for images that apparently Mexico has a huge problem with firework fatalities and an Mm. explosion in Tultepec killed a bunch of people as recently as 2018. So that's uh, very unfortunate because all the pictures my father took of the festival in the 90s were absolutely amazing. I'll have to see if I can get him to scan some and pass them along. Meanwhile, on the island of Malta, probably because they have something to prove, they make the absolutely huge firework shells you'll see below. And she includes some images. And these just look like they're as big as a person. They they look like massive, um, like, oxygen tanks. Yeah. Uh, Absurd. Gigantic. Uh, she continues, why so big? I don't know. They, too, have a yearly fireworks festival, which I would love to attend at some point. Anyway, if you have any specific questions, I'm more than happy to pick my dad's brain for answers. And as always, keep up the good work. Kelsey.
0: Oh, thank you, Kelsey. Well, it is very sad to hear that uh, that in, in the Mexican festival that there would be fatalities involved with it. But it, it does make me wonder, like, um, is it or is it not part of the appeal of the fireworks that they're dangerous? Do you think, like generally, like is that sort of part of what people like about them?
1: Perhaps you know, there's that that definite feeling of of uh, of lighting the firework and then in the fuse starts burning and you have to run away really quick quickly and then dare to look back and see what happens. And there is always the possibility that it's going to fall over and you know blast something it's not supposed to blast or that the the fire will. Uh, uh, will will fizzle out. The fuse will stop burning and you'll have to figure out, OK, how am I going to go up there and check on it without blasting my face off? So, yeah, I think the danger is a part of it, um, though, of course, the danger is the worst part of it, too. Right. Well, obviously, it's, it's
0: terrible when people actually get hurt or killed.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, on top of that, if you're dealing with irresponsible use of fireworks, I mean, that's that's even worse like using fireworks in areas that um, that, that are you know, that suffered from drought and they're not legally allowed using mm-hmm. fireworks in a way that is irresponsible or dangerous to yourself or others. I mean, I've heard horrible stories about that sort of thing before.
0: Yes. So again, while it is a fascinating topic, please do be aware of the dangers and please don't go messing around doing dangerous stuff because of an email we read on the show.
1: Yes. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, more listener mail. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: All right, we're back. So this next message in our listener mail episode comes from Brian. Brian is writing about our episodes on the invention of the book. Brian says, Dear Robert and Joe, I've been a listener to Stuff to Blow Your Mind for many years, uh, often thought of sending feedback your way related to previous podcasts, but never got around to it. However, while bicycle riding and listening to your books podcast, the first episode through a sudden Seattle downpour, I decided to send in some comments specifically related to the question you posed about what actually constitutes a book. Several months ago, I was introduced to a scholar by the name of Lynn Kelly, interviewed by Sean Carroll on his Mindscape podcast. A science writer, researcher, and educator, she became interested in studying pre-literate oral cultures, beginning with the aboriginal culture of her native Australia and eventually including various African nomadic cultures, Incas and Pueblos of the Americas. As a result of this research, she developed a very intriguing theory, which literally blew my mind – Literally? <laughs> the show is dangerous. <laughs> when I first heard her describe it, she has published an academic paper on the theory as well as a general interest book co- entitled The Memory Code. Her theory suggests that preliterate oral cultures utilized the immense human capacity for memory to encode many books worth of information in their brains in a manner similar to how modern memory champions do today. The ancient memory techniques ranged from performance triggers, and this would include stories, songs, and dances, to loci triggers – landscape features, physical space, and memory palaces – and tactile triggers – beads, shells, and knots – The common element through all these techniques, however, is the brain's power of association, particularly when associating odd, absurd, unusual images with what you want to remember. This capacity seems to scale logarithmically as opposed to linearly, which allows those skilled in these techniques to encode vast amounts of information in their memories, Additionally, her theory suggests the purpose of some Neolithic architecture – for example, Stonehenge, Chaco Canyon, Machu Picchu, etc. – was more related to essential memory retention than to religious-based rituals more commonly associated with these sites – Of particular relation to your book definition question would be the shape and tactile techniques Lynn describes and shows in her Memory Code book. These range from the elaborate rope knots used by the Incas to small handheld pieces of wood or stone carvings, hides with shells, or other small objects attached. Somewhat similar to the modern Braille alphabet, but with a capacity to encode orders of magnitude more information per page than a modern book. Certainly a pre-alphabet form of information storage and one that has sharing limitations, but does meet many of the criteria of more modern books. Anyway, keep up the great information sharing work that your team does with these podcasts. Best, Brian. Well, Brian, I, I've heard uh, other theories before about different ideas about how memories were encoded in, in preliterate times and in preliterate cultures. And I don't think I'd come exactly across this theory before, but th- this is an interesting possibility, like the idea that structures in the environment and uh, different types of trinkets and objects held in the hand or on the body could essentially be tools used to aid in free association through memory to retain large amounts of information that would be hard to remember on its own.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, And it it reminds me, too, of just the idea of, say, a Christian cathedral, a Catholic cathedral, or, uh, say, a a Tibetan Buddhist temple. Uh, These are spaces that are, in their own way, uh, a kind of text. They are about... um, recording information and conveying ideas to the person who is present. Like when you're inside of a cathedral, you know, certainly just the, the architecture of the space is supposed to inform a certain message about the the, the nature of the cosmos or the, you know, the grandeur of the divine. And then likewise, you'll see examples of, of sculpture or art that are about making some sort of difficult theological concept. Uh, palpable to the human mind like something explaining uh, the nature of the trinity that sort of thing and likewise in, in tibetan buddhism especially we have some very you know advanced sort of spiritual technologies in play there um uh, I've, I've read that that is uh, that that's often the intent of some of these more elaborate and to many westernized you know uh, mysterious pieces of art it's about conveying. Uh, Theological information to the viewer and helping and even serving as a teaching implement. All right, let's uh, open up another listener mail here. This one comes to us from Danny. Danny writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Thank you for all the content you provide week in and week out. It's comforting to have you in my ear while running or mowing the lawn or the dreaded commute. I'm writing for a few reasons, all related to your recent episodes on invention regarding invented words. Firstly, I've been uh, trying to learn Japanese as of late, and I was fascinated when I came across a lesson that taught me the word ito, uh, which is a filler word that translates to um in English. I'd never thought about it before, but apparently we learn all of these words uh, that I just thought were basic sounds that humans made from birth. I always assumed that when a person is thinking about a topic or, and, or stumped for a bit, they just naturally say the word um, mm. But I guess the word that comes out of our mouth depends on the language we learn. This newfound discovery prompted me to look into it, and it appears all languages are full of these filler words. Maybe this was obvious to most people, but I was not aware. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. And it's not just words. I mean, it can be just pure
0: vowel sounds. We I think in English, English speakers very often tend to default to the, the schwa sound, the uh, because that's sort of a rest sound in in the English language. But in other languages, you might rest on a different vowel sound. So where we would say not even um but uh, other languages might be
1: more likely to say a or o. Mm, they continue. Somewhat similarly, you guys spoke about uh, onomatopoeia and the word yeet. I don't know how you really classify something as having an onomatopoeia-it quality to it, but I can get behind yeet. I find a lot of our sound words are just... Kind of sort of related to how they actually sound, but it's not by any means concrete. Does something really bang or slam, or are we just used to the words associated with those sounds? A dog says Bow Wow in English, but Now Now in Spanish and blaf in Afrikaans. Does it really sound like one uh, over the other, or are we just used to these words? Or maybe animal sounds are not supposed to be onomatopoeias, and I am way off. Anyways, I can support heat.
0: Well, I think you're getting into the territory there of uh, like idiophones that we talked about in a previous episode where something suggests a kind of sound association, even though it's not based on anything audible.
1: Yeah, Lastly, I wanted to get to your thoughts on when in a word or phrase's lifespan, it can officially mean something different than its original definition. I think of the term begs the question. In college, I had a philosophy professor that would absolutely lose it when somebody used the term begs the question incorrectly. In classical rhetoric, the term refers to an informal fallacy that occurs when an argument's premises assume the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it. An example could be, quote, everybody wants this new Pokemon toy because it is the hottest toy this holiday season. (laughs) However, nowadays, it seems that when people use the term, they are simply raising or suggesting a question. So although I understand what my philosophy teacher was getting at, at what point can we just say, hey, look, this phrase means something else now, so get on board. Anyway, uh, this got a little longer than I expected. I just love the idea of words and languages and how we have different ways of communicating. Thanks for speaking about this subject and all of the other topics you cover. I truly appreciate it. Danny. Um, you know, this, of course, brings to mind the, the, the frequent misuse of literally. <laughs> yeah. Did this come up in an earlier email? Or, I think it did. We yes. don't want to shame
0: you too much for
1: it. Uh, no, I don't just, even know if we're allowed to shame right. anyone for it now because uh, apparently definitions are shifting to, to the point where you can – Legally, from a grammatical sense, you can legally say something is literally something and not mean literally. You can say he literally took his head off or (laughs) I literally wanted to puke. And it doesn't mean you literally did that. It means figuratively. Yeah, I mean— so, there are obviously these different schools of how you
0: should approach the use of words and phrases like that. Like, there's the prescriptivist school, which says, you know, here's what it means in established, you know, canons and, and you should stick to that original meaning. And then I guess there's like the usage school that says, you know, however, if, if people understand what you mean, then what's the problem? And I do, I, I have sympathies with both camps, I guess. I will say against the prescriptivist School that just says, you know, you need to use a word or phrase to mean what it's always meant. I don't know. I mean, it's embarrassing when you realize how many arguments full of passionate intensity really in the end come down to people arguing about what a word or phrase means. It's just yeah. mind meltingly tedious. So, based on that, I think language should be evaluated on the basis of its power to communicate. Will the listener understand what you intended to say? Then again, at the same time, I have to admit, like, I have a gut level reaction against that kind of thing. When I see literally used not to mean literally, especially when I catch myself doing it, I just feel like, oh,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's I always come back to uh, like a stand up bit that uh, David Cross had about it, about how when you use literally wrong, you, it's like this is not just incorrect usage. It's it's the, the opposite of what is supposed to mean. Um, I think the the example he used was it's it's not like when you say penultimate and you mean ultimate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can easily get kind of worked up over it myself. <laughs> and- but at the same hand, I agree that it's like like language is going to change over time and we can't. You know we we can't get mad when it does change,
0: yeah, I agree you you can't fix it. you can't keep it stuck in place. That language has always changed. It's actually a relatively modern invention, like the notion that words that you must use words and grammar in a certain way uh I mean, if you go back and read ancient texts, they do not follow consistent rules of grammar and and stuff like Spelling, that I mean, yeah it's it's more usage based it's more fluid. It's just like are you going to be understood. Though I will admit I I also – this exact same thing about your philosophy teacher with begs the question. That one gets to me sometimes. I know exactly what people mean. I don't – I try not to hound people about it because people are going to understand what you mean when you say begs the question. You mean it raises the question. But yeah, I've got that like stupid rhetoric brain where it's like this actually is a fallacy. It's the name of a fallacy. You're insulting somebody if you say they beg the question. (laughs) But anyway, I, I, I can I can purge my rhetoric brain for a bit.
1: <laughs> All right, well, what do we have next here?
0: All right, looks like we got a couple from uh, Anna about our Slayer episode.
1: Oh yeah, this is when uh, we put out a, a playlist of Halloween episodes uh, from uh, past October.
0: right the Haltober playlist.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, so this one uh, goes as follows. Uh, hi, Robert and Joe. In a recent Vault episode, you were discussing instinctive fears of spiders and snakes. I live in Australia here uh, where there are a lot of spiders and snakes. There's a very common spider called a huntsman spider. They're very large, hairy spiders. Although many people were afraid of these spiders, there's also a common reaction to them that is something like affection. A common nickname for them is hairy huntsman. <laughs> They seem to like to live near people, like in houses and cars. Often, if someone is showing up around their house, they will show them into a room where there is a huntsman on the wall. Someone who is unfamiliar with the area might point at it nervously and say, there is a huge spider up there. The person whose room it is will often say something like, oh, that's just Harry. Here in Australia, the spiders that are deadly are much smaller than huntsman spiders. The part that is scary about huntsman spiders is the way they move. Somehow they seem to scuttle and glide at the same time. In fact, huntsmen have caused death, but because of the fear and not the spider themselves, spiders like to hide in cars. Sometimes they will hide under the sun visor or in the rear-view mirror. The spider will run across the windscreen, and someone will crash their car as a fear reaction." People have also been known to take drastic action in trying to get rid of one of these spiders in the house, and sometimes people hurt themselves as a part of these actions. If I may add, um, this, this has a real poetic quality to it that I'm yeah. loving. There's like a, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm reading poetry. Yeah, it's got a heck of a rhythm. Yeah. We have a lot of snakes here, generally. The best idea is just to leave them alone. I think knowledge is the best way to combat fear. Knowing which snakes are dangerous and which are not, and what to do when you see a snake is helpful. Secondly, I know you have mentioned that in most myths about snakes, they are the enemy. One exception to this is Australian indigenous myths. One of the common myths among Australian Indigenous groups is the Rainbow Serpent. In this myth, the Rainbow Serpent is actually a creator. The Rainbow Serpent is something like a creator god. As it moves through the land, it carves out the landscape of Australia. This is my memory of the story we were told in school, so it might be a bit simplistic or inaccurate. Hope you are staying safe. Here in Australia, I feel like we are feeling something like disaster fatigue. We have had drought, terrible fires, and heat waves, then storms, then the current pandemic. Australia has always handled this well, but is still tough for many people. Just when we wanted people to go and visit rural areas to recover from the fires and drought, the lockdowns happened. So many people are really struggling. Anyway, I have gone on for too long now. Keep up the good work, Anna. You know, often
0: we hear from Australians who sort of characterize it as the land of spiders and snakes. It's sort of like the the venom continent. Yeah, I really appreciate the spirit of gentleness and, and grace with which you're approaching these venomous creatures.
1: Yeah, and I also have to say, I, I really like the poetic cadence <laughs> of uh, of this particular email. This one was a real pleasure to read. Now, Anna also wrote in in another uh, email and sent along uh, a photograph, writing, I enjoyed re-listening to your episode about monster slayers. You were talking about St. George and how images in him make the horse look huge and the dragon look meek. Below is a statue in Melbourne. I really like that someone has put a plastic rainbow uh, lay on the horse's tail. Oh, yeah, Uh, and indeed, (laughs) There it is, yeah.
0: Uh, This one's like all the other ones, where the dragon is, you know, maybe it's crocodile-sized, I mean, a crocodile Mm -hmm. can be dangerous, but in this, this statue makes St. George look cruel. Like this dragon could not possibly be be captivating an entire village.
1: It looks like it would be a mild nuisance. Like it keeps eating the dogs, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Anna. This was great. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more
0: break, but we'll be right back with more. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. We got uh, several messages in response to our episode about fermented vegetables, where we talked about kimchi and sauerkraut. Uh, this was a message from Jim in New Jersey, longtime correspondent. Jim oh, says, yes. <laughs> how you doing, Jim? Jim says, Robert and Joe, I vacationed for a month in Japan a bit over 30 years ago. I ate a lot of sushi. Unlike the sushi one gets in the US, the sushi dishes there included fermented vegetables. They were often bright purple or orange. They were great, and I've never found them in the US. Maybe the higher-end sushi establishments serve them. Jim, that makes me wonder, what kind of bootleg sushi establishments you've been going to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, he says, I've made fermented peppers from a recipe in a magazine. It was very much like you described with vegetables in salt water topped with a loose lid for several days. The article mentioned several times that this was a perfectly safe process. The article included one helpful suggestion. I liked this. It was a suggestion uh, to keep the peppers in the salt water while fermenting. Because uh, in in uh, my my interview with Esther Miller, one of the things she emphasized that was important to make sure that the uh, fermentation works properly and stays safe is to keep all your vegetables submerged. They need to stay underneath the surface of the brine uh, because it's the anaerobic fermentation that's really important. Um, so anyway, uh, Jim goes on. Right before you place the lid on top of the jar, put some water in a sandwich bag and seal it shut. Jam the sandwich water bag into the top of the jar so that it pushes the peppers down into the salt water. Cap with the loose lid and wait several days. Uh, Jim in New Jersey. I think this sounds like a really good trick. I haven't tried this. I actually have a couple of fermentation weights that I use, Then they just sit on top of the stuff and weigh it down. But What uh, are they made out of? Are they stones? Or uh, I don't know what they're actually made out of. They're some kind of clear material. I, I would say clear plastic, but they feel kind of denser and heavier than normal plastic, so I, I'm not exactly sure what they are. There's some kind of food-grade material, but I bet this water bag trick would work.
1: All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from Sean. Hi, Joe and Robert. Longtime listener and occasional writer writing in. (laughs) You have previously read out some emails of mine. I'm currently listening to your episode on kimchi, which I haven't uh, finished yet. So if I say anything that comes up later on in the episode, I am very sorry. Bad form, Sean. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) You asked near the beginning of your episode for people's experiences growing up with durian. I didn't grow up with durian. As I've said in my previous emails, I grew up in England and moved to Indonesia several years ago. But it's hands down my favorite fruit. The first time I tried it, it didn't do much for me. It had a slightly off taste. After that time, I tried to avoid it and hated the smell. This was difficult as at the time I lived in Jakarta near a big durian market. However, after going to a durian market with someone who is experienced and choosing the best durian, I fell in love. It's sweet, creamy flesh combined with the flavor of almost every fruit known at once. It's incomparable. I definitely recommend trying your first durian with an experienced guide. As if the durian is slightly unripe, the quality of flavor drops dramatically. But a ripe durian is the best thing ever. I also love it when durian has fermented slightly, so it has a bit of a musty kick. Mm. When it's durian season, I love to buy one or two and eat them together with my wife. My wife tells me how she used to sit up late with her dad eating it. For those who enjoy the fruit, eating it is a social event in its own right. It's not just something you snack on during your commute. I'm also loving this episode so far. Being away from my homeland, I get the occasional craving for English food. More often than not, this is pickled food, like gherkins, dill pickles, pickled beetroot, or piccalilli, pickled vegetables with turmeric and mustard powder. Huh, I don't know if I've had that. Uh, When I'm in England on holiday, I stuff my face with these treats.
0: You know, uh, uh, like a standard, plain, old-school yellow mustard, not the spicy kind, uh, uh-huh. yeah, that that's actually going to create a flavor somewhat similar to a lily. except a lily, oh, okay. I think, will have more discernible vegetable matter in it. Gotcha.
1: Uh, anyway, he continues, quote, I've taken to trying to ferment my own foods out of necessity. You can buy some pickled English foods here, but they're so expensive that I try to make them at home. I regularly make yogurt at home, as yogurt tends to be quite expensive, but milk is relatively cheap. I found that pickling foods is not only quite easy and cheap, but often a lot tastier than what you'd get in a shop. I love how almost every culture in the world has a variant of pickled food. Here in Indonesia, we have uh, akar or akar. That's a pickled cucumber, garlic, shallot, and chili, mm. and akar kuning, similar to akar but with the addition of turmeric. This is similar to the Indian achar, which uh, uh, was also the inspiration for the English uh, uh, piccolili. There's also a range of fermented foods, including tempeh, a kind of soybean cake fermented with fungus, which I'm seeing more and more of on American TV nowadays. Ooh, I do love some tempeh. Yeah, me too. Is, uh, how about uh, satan? Is, uh, is, that, uh, is that fermented? I can't remember how that's made.
0: I don't know what, say, is Satan a wheat,
1: is a wheat gluten product? I'm not quite sure. Oh, yeah. We need to look at it. There, there's actually an idea we've been kicking around. I don't want to spoil the, the, the fluff on it, uh, but I kind of want to do an episode in the future about um, our modern choices in fake meats and meat substitutes in which case we will probably get into the nature of satan. Oh it makes you tempeh.
0: it makes you wonder what is meat, what counts as meat. I mean obviously like a big hunk of like a, a pork shoulder is meat, but there are some products in between
1: yeah and then what's the meat experience like one thing I, I like in dealing with say um you know vegetarian alternatives to um uh, to bur to meat based burgers, you know it's like sometimes you have a, an item that really captures the the feel of of a meat patty. other times it doesn't really capture that, but it becomes its own thing and yet is somehow still meat like in, in in its experience.
0: I'm down with this idea i
1: Robert, I think you and I
0: could get very psychedelic on meat substitutes.
1: All right. All right. Well, Sean uh, has just a little bit left here. I'm going to run through it. I'd recommend reading the book Gut by Julia Enders. Enders dedicates a section of the book to fermented food and how this ties in with our love of the sour taste. (laughs) She also points out, and I can't agree more, that once you have tried a particular fermented or pickled food, you will never stop craving it thanks for another entertaining episode. All the best, Sean. P.S., if you guys are ever in Indonesia after the madness of this year ends around January to March time, I'll take you hunting for some good durian. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think we're locked in for now, but that's that's a mighty tempting offer. Yeah. Now, does Sean mean at a durian market or like ranging over the the landscape
1: for wild durian? (laughs) I assume he means the market experience, which sounds... (laughs) Sounds sounds plenty exciting in and of its uh, its own right, but uh, yeah, because I've had very limited experience with durian, but I've certainly never had an expert guide me. So that would that would really be interesting to to to, to have some top shelf durian.
0: All right, well, that's one more door of perception left to walk through the durian door. All right. Uh this next email, this one was short, but this came from our listener Terence. Terence writes about the Egg Chamber episode, specifically the segment where we were talking about exploding eggs. Oh yes. Uh Terence says, "I have had the misadventure to have tried to cook two raw eggs in the microwave. I cracked two eggs into a coffee cup and nuked them for 2 to 3 minutes." When they came out, I jammed a fork into it, and blammo, the cooked egg explodes out, hitting my face, putting a blast pattern on the ceiling. But there was still all the egg whites left to eat. Painfully, I enjoyed what was left. (laughs) Never repeated this again. (laughs) What? Okay, so I'm trying to understand Terrence's message here. It sounds like he's saying he stuck the fork in, it exploded, burned him, left a pattern on the ceiling, but pretty much all of that was yolk. And then the stuff left down in the mug was the egg white, and he ate it. Is that? Am I catching it all here? I think so. Okay. <laughs> if my, if I'm understanding this correctly, this would be in line with the uh, the interpretation we talked about in the episode where the the scientists thought that probably what's happening is that pockets of superheated water are trapped within the protein matrix of the yolk, specifically the yolk, not the whites. And then, of course, when it gets pierced, it suddenly flashes into steam, expands, and blows the egg all over the place. Pattern on the ceiling, that is, I'm trying to picture it. All right, anyway, this next email comes to us from Matthias. This one was about the Demogorgon. Matthias says, hey, guys, I was just listening to the episode of the pod about the Demogorgon, and there you mentioned Paradise Lost by Milton and discussed various texts and stories from Christian mythology. And all this made me think about one of the most famous Hungarian epic poems or stage plays. This thing is a strange one. It's called The Tragedy of Man by – I hope I'm saying this right – Im, Imre Madoc from 1883. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's a good read. Well, it is in Hungarian. I didn't read all of the English version, but from the little I did read, I think it's a quite decent translation. The plot is a strange paraphrase of the Faustus story, where instead of Dr. Faustus, the devil or whichever version of the story you like tries to tempt Adam in and outside of the Garden of Eden by showing him the future of humanity, including the fair heroes of egypt the french revolution and a strange dystopian future so there is some science fiction in there for you and many more historical events and places but i don't want to spoil the whole thing anyway really love the show guys keep it up uh, now that it's summer i'm at two episodes a day i know i have too much free time but what can you do cheers matthias
1: from hungary oh that's awesome thanks for thanks for writing in
0: and uh so matthias and links to three different English translations of this play. I was not familiar with whatever you call it, epic poem play. Uh, I was not familiar with it, but I, I looked up some of these translations and there's some good stuff in it. Uh, so there's one translation from JCW Horn in 1963, and there's a scene where where Lucifer or the devil and Adam travel together into space. So we get, we get space travel. And uh-huh. Lucifer says... So high are we now risen, from the sight first fades the beautiful, and then the great and mighty, till at length naught else remains to us than mathematics, cold, remote. And then Adam says, Now fade the stars behind us as we fly. I see no end, I feel no obstacle. Without love, without conflict, what is life? Here all is cold and terror, Lucifer. Then Lucifer says, If thus far only thou hast the heart to go, then turn we back and play amid the dust. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. The devil's taunting humans into space exploration. Like, oh, you're too <laughs> scared to, to go into space. Well, why don't you, you're scared because space makes it seem like the only thing that really exists is cold mathematics. Well, why don't, why don't you go play in the dirt? <laughs> That's great. Uh, and then I checked out one of the other translations by uh, somebody called Otto Tomshay. And in the final scene, it ends with the, I, I don't think spoilers matter for a Hundred-year-old epic play, but so this is the final scene. Warning, uh, with and it ends with the Creator, the Lord, giving an exhortation to Adam and Eve in their banishment from the Garden of Eden. And the Lord says, "I told you, man, fight, trust, and be full of hope."
1: Wow, I'm so glad this was brought to our attention. This is this is some really cool stuff that I had just had no uh, knowledge of.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. I don't think I'd ever heard of this at all. So, so thank you so much, Matthias. The, I, I might I might have to dive in.
1: All right, well, speaking of outer space, I do want to read this one from JD. Um, And this is in response to our episode about the Sarlacc. Hey, guys, I've been binging on your podcast since the 2019 Christmas holiday, which seems quite a long time ago. If the most important thing I can do is to rate and review you, where do I go to do that? I currently pull your shows from the, the iHeartRadio site, and there doesn't appear to be a place to rate and review you. All right, well, we'll ta- let's, let's tackle this first. We, we do have to realize that, yes, not every platform is going to provide you the opportunity to rate, review, and subscribe. Um, so, you know, don't worry about it if it's not an option. But if it is an option, uh, it is something you can do to help us out. Now on to the fun stuff. Uh, J.D. writes, on your most recent post on the Sarlacc, yes, there is a phenomenon where the earth opens up and swallows you whole and no, not earthquakes, but sinkholes. (laughs) This is a great point because sinkholes can be Incredibly dramatic. Yeah. Um, So uh, this is this is actually kind of a hole in uh, in our research, because I can I can well imagine sinkholes uh, definitely helping to inform in places this idea of the earth swallowing people. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and then the second point uh, that J.D. brings up, not even a passing mention of dune worms. <laughs> Does anything about the sarlacc not remind me of dune worms? Hell, you even made a joke, a spice joke toward the end. Am I missing something here? Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for complaining that we didn't talk about dune enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, uh, I, I do I do need to point out that I was tempted to talk about um, uh, the sandworms of Arrakis, Multiple times, but I was like, "Nope, this is about the Sarlacc. This is the Sarlacc, the Sarlacc's time to shine. This is Star Wars uh, time right now, not Dune time." Uh, however. We do have a couple of Science of Dune episodes in the back catalog, one of which really gets into sandworm science and different uh, commentators' breakdown of sandworm science and what is actually in uh, the works of Frank Herbert. Um, So go back and listen to those uh, if you're interested. I know that since we're going to have this uh, exciting new adaptation um, of the first half of the novel come out uh, really in just a few months— uh, I'm certainly excited to return to the world of Dune. So be on the lookout. We'll probably bust those Dune episodes uh, back into the vault again uh, so people uh, can can listen to them a little closer to this new movie. And there are some additional Dune-related topics we can discuss on the show for sure. Yeah,
0: so get your hooks ready. What are they, what are they called? The climbing hooks that they use to saddle up the sandworms?
1: Oh, the, the exact terminology is failing me now. Yeah. Uh, but... But don't worry, I'm going to bone up here in the months ahead. (laughs) All right, J.D. finishes uh, out by saying, the episodes on staring and pointing you recently put out are the poster children for your brand of podcast. Very clever liberal arts synthesis of ancient art and behavior that explains some of the stuff that not only happens today, but that we all do and react to. Still thinking about some of the items you raised on those episodes, J.D. Oh, thanks. Glad you liked them. All right. Well, Carney is uh, beginning to explode again, and that's his way of letting us know that our time here is at an end. But again, uh, you know, we, we don't have time to read everything that we receive here on the show. We don't have time to respond to everybody individually. But we continue to enjoy um, and, and learn from, uh, to benefit from uh, your insight into the topics we discuss on the show every week. So keep them coming, and we will keep reading them. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. If the form if the particular platform allows it, rate, review, and subscribe. Huge
0: thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.